coming to the end of Exodus. By the way, um, you know, we've been in this space for almost 10 years now. <laughs> I don't know about some of you who've been around here for a while. It's going to be hard to leave it. It really is. I, I mean, I could get emotional right now just thinking about all the memories we've made here and all the things that God, God has done here. He's just been so, so faithful. Um, all right. Exodus chapter 33. While you're turning there, uh, just a little review. Um, So far, we've seen how God, in his amazing way, delivered this people, Israel, from Egypt. And yeah, it was through signs and wonders and plagues, but eventually it was the blood of the lamb, the lamb on the doorpost that covered them, protected them, and set them free. And we also learn that it's really more than just deliverance that God brought Israel out of Egypt, but he brought them out so he could bring them in to himself to take them from slave to segulah, his, his treasured possession. Uh, because God chose them, he chose Israel for love, for marriage. And it's not just any marriage, but it's a marriage with a mission. They're called to be a kingdom of priests, which means they are to reflect God, to put God on display uh, for the world to know and understand God. That's why God says, I want you to be holy as I am holy. As you reflect me, you must be like me, be like me, be like me. And of course, Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're a city on a hill, a light shining in darkness. And then he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, be like him. Be like him. This is what it means to be a disciple. It's someone who has a passion in their life to be like him. So God entered this marriage with Israel with with mission in mind. And the mission really is none other than the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is the simple truth that our God reigns. And his reign brings shalom to chaos. And God's people are redeemed from the world for the world, as we are today. Okay. If we're going to be about this mission, then what we're going to learn today takes on great importance. Let's read the text. Exodus 33. Let's stand for God's words. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. Now listen to what God says. I'll send an angel before you, and this angel will fulfill my promise. He'll drive out all the people of the land, and you'll go up to that land flowing with milk and honey. Hear this, but I will not go with you (laughs) because you are a stiff-necked people And I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) Kind of like when we're on road trips with my family. It's like, man, I'm going to kill you kids. (laughs) And then we'll just move forward because we have a lot to cover. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And you have said to me, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. So if you're pleased with me, God, if you really like me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. God, remember that this nation, they're not my people, they're your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And that's plural, not singular. And I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with us and with your people unless you go with us? I mean, what is it that makes us different from the rest of the world? And the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you. I like you, Moses, and I know you by name. And then Moses walked away and said, thank you, God. Uh Uh-uh. Moses said, show me. Show me now, please, your glory. 
And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But Moses, you cannot see my face. For no one may see my face and live. And then the Lord said, I'll tell you what I'll do. There's a place near where you stand on a rock and my glory will pass by and I'll put you in the cleft in that rock which is where we get the song Rock of Ages cleft for me I'll put you in the cleft of rock I'll cover cover you with my hand until I've passed by and then I'll remove my hand but you'll see my back only my face must not be seen and so then 34 begins with uh, Moses come up to the mountain tomorrow up the mountain first I want you to bring the two tablets. We're going to get this marriage going again. We're going to renew our vows. Um, And then go down to 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses. And he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this whole text that we just read, uh, again, picks up with Moses in priest mode. He's priesting on behalf of the people um, because this is right on the heels of the whole golden calf incident. And as I highlighted, God is saying some pretty stunning things to Moses in in the first three verses of Exodus 33. Uh, Basically what God is saying, look, I'm a faithful God and I'm going to stay true to my promises. I'm going to Uh, give you that land that I promised Moses. (laughs) I'm not going with you. And right now, it'd be really easy to jump all over God and and say, what kind of God is this? But what I want us to remember is, first of all, this is a marriage. And over and over again, when you read the text closely, the people have rejected God. God. First, they rejected his voice. I mean, on their wedding day, when God came down and God spoke to them, uh, the people said, we can't stand to hear God's voice. It's going to kill us. So they said, Moses, you go up the mountain and get God's word and then come back down the mountain and tell us what he said. And then to make matters worse, on their honeymoon, I mean, they just flat out commit adultery. I mean, they rejected God for that Egyptian golden calf. So Moses finds himself in this constant priest mode, this this go-between mode. He's between God and the people. And let's remember this about God. God isn't some impersonal force. Kind of like Star Wars, let the force be with you. He is a personal God. And he is personally invested all of himself in this relationship. And so he says what he says. I'll be true to my promises, but I'm not going with you. Now look at Moses' response. Verse 12 starts. Moses just say, okay, God, you're right, you're right. You know, we just really... We, we blew it, and this is what we deserve. So uh, you stay here, and we'll make our way to the promised land without you. Is that what Moses says? In fact, I wish we could hear what Moses said himself, because um, I think Moses is getting a little bit, let me say, spicy with God here. Um, and he says to God, he says, God, look, here's the deal. If your presence doesn't go with us, then we're not going. In fact, he takes this further. He says, why would we? Your presence is everything. Your presence is what makes us different and distinct from all the people on the face of the earth. 
And I think he's incredibly spicy at this point with God. Sometimes my wife will get spicy with me. (laughs) Actually, quite a bit spicy. And I'll just kind of jokingly say back to her, I love it when you talk to me this way. Because strength loves strength, right? You know, the Jews have a, a term for this. It's the word chutzpah. Chutzpah is this persistent, straight shooting, intense way of talking. Something Dutch people aren't that good at. And I don't know what what gene I got that made me what I am. Um, But do you remember Abraham? I mean, Abraham had all kinds of this chutzpah. I mean, God comes to him and confides in him what what he's about to do with with Sodom. and, And Abraham... Instead of saying, okay, God, you're right. You should do what you should do. Um, he just almost gets off on God. I mean, he actually says, God, you're the creator of the world. I mean, this isn't how the creator of the universe is to act. How dare you, God, destroy Sodom? And then Abraham persists and he persent, persists. Moses here is doing the same. And Moses will repeatedly talk to God this way. I want you to know, in the Bible, there are only two people who are called friends of God. Abraham, and who else? Moses. In fact, one of the verses I didn't read, but you should see it, is um, verse 11 of chapter 33. Let your eyes fall on it right now. And it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Face to face as God speaks to a friend. I mean, this is how friends talk, right? This is how I talk with my friends. This is how I talk to my best friend, Libby. This is how my best friend talks to me. We don't play games with each other. We we don't just express ourselves in niceties. We straight shoot with gut-wrenching honesty. A few weeks ago, I got an email from, from someone in this church. It was entitled, Just a Letter from the Sick and Diseased. And this is a man in his 20s. And in a whole page email, several paragraphs, with swear word after swear word, he explained his frustration about being a 28-year-old virgin. And all the frustrations of of, of being in a community and and belonging to God and taking this seriously. Being frustrated. And I thought to myself as I read it, because he so blessed me more than he even realizes, but he really didn't write that email to me as much as he wrote it to God. And I'm going to tell you something. As much as I love that letter, I think God loved it even more. See, we've been taught our whole lives to be nice. And the way that we are in relationships is just to to put on the nice face and be nice people. And then we apply this to God. But here's the deal. God is not a force. God is a person. And he is personal. And he can handle our gut-wrenching honesty. He can handle our questioning of him. And more than handle it, God loves it. I mean, why does God name his people what he names them? What does he name them? I don't like Jacob. I want a different name for you. What does he name them? Israel. What does Israel mean? Wrestles with God. God loves a good wrestling match. He loves it when we wrestle with them. He loves our questions. He loves our pleads. He loves our moans, our laments, our frustrations. Why? Because this is a relationship. And he is an intensely personal God. And see, in our actual wrestling with God, as opposed to just being nice, what we're actually screaming back to God is that we actually care. We care about this stuff. And we care about him. And we care about the stuff he cares about. God loves chutzpah. 
Now look at how this uh, wrestling match ends. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing that you have asked because I like you, Moses. And I know you. I know you. I know your heart. And I'm going to tell you right now what, what Moses is for the people of God in this story is what we are to be for our world. Can I call you Israel today? Are you wrestling with God? Are you? On behalf of whom? For Abraham, it was sodomites. Wrestling with God on behalf of sodomites. For Moses, it's adulterous people. What about you? Who are you wrestling with God on behalf? It's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. It's what it means to be Israel. Or people that wrestle with God. Where It could be your spouse who doesn't know the Lord. It could be a son or daughter who, who's walked away from the Lord. It could be your neighbor. It could be the people you work with. I mean, we are called to be a people that wrestle with God for the sake of people who need God. Now, this would be one phenomenal encounter with God, but Moses isn't done here. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, in fact, this is how it literally reads, now, please show me your glory. I want more of you, God. And part of me is like, wait a second, Moses. I mean, come on, dude. Uh, you've already seen the glory of God in the burning bush. You saw the glory of the plagues. You saw the glory of God splitting the Red Sea. You heard the glory of his voice. You witnessed the glory of God coming down in Sinai when the whole earth shook and thunder, fire, and smoke. Every day you witnessed the glory of God going before you in a pillar of cloud and then a pillar of fire by night. And even if that isn't much, Two months, God then also said, hey, why don't you come into the cloud with me for 40 days? In fact, not only once, but two times, Moses, you entered the glory cloud. And now you have the audacity to ask God, hey, God, show me your glory. I mean, to me, this almost sounds like an insult. What is Moses requesting? Well, let's first just look at this Hebrew word uh, for glory. In, in Hebrew, it's the word kavod. Kavod is, is a word that means weight. Weightiness. Weight as in the, the essence of something. Something that weighs a lot. Something that's weighty. is glorious. And see... God knows exactly what Moses is asking when he says, show me your kavod, because the way God answers his request in verses 19 and 20 is, look, Moses, you can't see my face. You can't see my face and live. It's a different word there in Hebrew, pane. But God then says, okay, this is, this is what I'll do for you, Moses. What I'll do is I'll find a little cleft in the rock, and I'll put you in there. I'll hide you in there. I'll cover it over with my hand, and then I'll cause all my goodness to pass by. That's what I will do for, Mo for you, Moses. But you cannot see my face and live. Not my face. Not my actual face. It would be like looking at the sun. And just think about how we cannot look directly at the sun, but yet without the sun, we cannot look at anything else. And so it is with God. It's like we can't look directly at him, but without him, we can't see anything. Show me 
Show me your glory. I want to see your face. I'm telling you, this is the prayer of all prayers. Because to behold someone's face is the ultimate act of intimacy. I, only with my wife and maybe with my kids and maybe with my parents, would I even dare take their face in my hands and look deeply into it. I I wouldn't do that with you. You wouldn't do that with me. You could if you wanted to. I mean, if it didn't get weird. (laughs) But I remember actually, uh, and I might have told you this before, but when Gabe was in the ninth grade, we went on this week-long thing at J.H. Ranch, and it was this father-son deal. Um, He's just a ninth grader. We're working through father-son issues. And one of the things the counselor did, I mean, they had us do all kinds of things, ropes course, all this stuff. Uh, but they had all these little things planned as well. Like one time we're doing a ropes course and they just stop and they said, okay, dads and sons, get next to each other and just look in each other's face. He said, this isn't a staring contest. That's not what we're doing. I want you to just behold Fathers, behold the face of your son. Son, behold the face of your fathers. Of course, Gabe is a ninth grader. He can't even look at me. He's looking all around and all of this. And I I was just looking at him. I'm looking at him. And 20 seconds into this, the tears just came down my neck. It's an intimate thing. Do it with your kids sometimes. Just say, hey, we're not going to have a staring contest, but let's just looking to each other's face. And this is how personal Moses is with God. I mean, just imagine if God invited you into the glory cloud, into the cloud of his presence. In fact, I wanted to hand hand out some text. Can someone take uh, Numbers 12, 7 and 8? Someone just say, I got that one. Thank you. And then also Psalm 27, verses 4 and 8. Thank you. And then Malachi 4, which speaks of the great day of the Lord. The last, I think it's the last verse. Thank you. Okay. Um, Can someone... Who took that Numbers 12, 7 to 8 text? Listen to this text. This is fascinating. <laughs> Did you just hear it? This is what that hurt, what was just read, if you didn't hear it. Uh, and what God is doing is comparing Moses to the other prophets. And through the other prophets, God had to speak through dreams and visions and things like that. But he says, not so with Moses. With Moses, this is mouth to mouth. And, and, and in fact, God says, so close is Moses that he can actually discern my form. Wait a second. God has a form? A mouth? A face, hands and feet. Again, don't think of of God or this cloud as this impersonal force. There's a person in that cloud. A God person who Moses is so close to. It's like, I can touch it. I want to see it. I think our closest word for, for this Hebrew word kavod, which is their word for glory in English, is the word matter. Because matter to us in English can also mean both weightiness, the, the, the weight of matter, and also significance and importance. So when we say, like, that thing matters to me, or, or winning this game really matters to me, or, or that person matters to me, what we're saying is that they carry weight, significance, importance. They matter. They're glorious. 
And here's the deal. We can't live without glory. We need glory. We need to know that we matter. We need to know that our lives matter. So what we do then is we seek glory in all kinds of places. Just ask yourself right now, honestly, what is your glory? Where do you go? What do you turn to for glory? To know that you matter, to know that your life matters. What do you seek? See, what Moses is saying in this request is, God, you are the only thing that matters. It's your presence. Your presence is the only thing that matters. That's why in verse 15, he says, if you don't go with us, promised land doesn't matter. And promised land, really, the way we could translate that today is health and wealth, milk and honey, uh, success, prosperity. And, And what Moses said, that stuff doesn't matter to me. It's not even all the things you do for us. It's you. It's your presence. We want you. If your presence doesn't go with us, then we're not going. In fact, verse 16 and then of 33, I mean, he says, this is what makes us different from all the peoples on the face of the earth. It's not even your Torah. It's not the miracles and all the things that you do for us. It's your presence, your presence. Show me your glory. I want to see your face. Who has Psalm 27, 4 and 8? David prayed the same prayer. One thing I ask, one thing that I I seek is to dwell in your presence. You say, seek my face. My heart says, your face I will seek, oh God. Because here's the deal. The more you know God, and I mean know him. I don't mean just know facts about him, but know him personally. The more you know him, the more you're going to seek him. And the more you seek him, the more you're going to find him. And the more you find him, the more you're going to want to see his face. So it's not just going to church. It's, It's not doing a bunch of good things for God that, that becomes our glory. It's when we seek him. And when we seek him, we find him. And when we find him, he becomes the supreme glory of our lives. And his presence then is all that matters. It's not our job. It's not our kids. It's not success. It's, it, it's not Anything this world has to offer, silver, gold, popularity, it's him. Can you say that about him this morning? David said, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weird land where there is no water. And that, my friends, is scaling the peaks of what it means to be a Christian. It's passion. It's passion for the living God. Because without this kind of passion, this whole thing just becomes another heavy burden. It becomes a set of moral prescriptions, a checklist of obligations, and it's the difference between you carrying your faith and your faith carrying you. This is why this is such an important question for all of us to ask this morning. What is our glory? What is it that we've made our glory? What is the source of our significance? Where do we go to derive our sense of importance? And however we answer that question, that thing or that person is our glory. I love what David says in Psalm 3. He says, thou, O Lord, you are my glory and you're the lifter of my head. And I'm going to tell you what, those two things always are connected. When God becomes the supreme glory in our lives, what he does is it just it lifts our head. And when we make other things our glory, I don't care what it is, give it enough time, and it will cause your head to drop in shame. 
But when we make him our glory, it just, it lifts our head. You, O oh Lord, are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Now, God's response to Moses' prayer is very interesting. He says, Moses, I can't show you my face. It will kill you. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft in a rock. I'm going to place my hand over that cleft, and I will cause my goodness, not my glory, but my goodness to pass before you. But of course, if you look at Exodus 34, before even that is done, God says, hey, let's, let's renew the covenant. Let's renew this marriage. Let's, you, your job this time, Moses, is to bring up the two tablets, and I'll, I'll write the wedding contract into those things. We're going to renew our vows and restore this marriage. By the way, the story in John 8 mirrors this whole thing, because in John 8, when that adulterous woman is, is brought to Jesus, not once, but two times, Jesus goes down and writes in the stony ground, mirroring what's going on in Exodus, not once, but twice, God writes with his finger into the stone, the marriage, and then packaged between this and Exodus, the two writings with God's finger is their adultery. And what this means is that if God can forgive Israel and God can renew a relationship to them, he can do the same for you. I don't care how great your sin is today. His grace always gets the last word, always. So Moses goes up the mountain with these two tablets and in verse five, it says, and the Lord descends and stands before Moses. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, as Paul says, is seen in Christ. And there they are in the cloud. Moses, Jesus. And then God speaks the most complete description of himself in the entire Bible. Before I read this description, let me ask you this question. Right now, who is God to you? How do you think of him? What is he like? How would you describe his character? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. In these two verses, there are nine specific, breathtaking descriptions of God. In fact, it's poetry. It's a chiasm. Do you remember chiasm? Chiasm is this sandwich way of writing where you put bread on the top, bread on the bottom, uh, lettuce on the top, lettuce within. Uh, condiments, condiments, and you're always working into the center, which is into the meat. And that's right where you want to go in a chiasm. The question you want to ask when you see a chiasm is, what is the meat? And if there are nine things, then what's the fifth? What's at the heart? And what is it? Well, your Bibles, most of it translates it faithfulness. Does anybody else have a different translation? The last word of verse 6. Truth. And I'm going to just say, in Hebrew, it's the word amet. Amet is also the word aman, which is, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. We say amen, which is so be it, truth. Truth is the, the, the better translation. 
but it's not just truth in terms of propositional truth, because that's how we as Westerners think of truth. I mean, remember Pilate's question to Jesus right before he's about to crucify him. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? That's Western. We see truth as in, 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 in the form of propositions and ideas and systems of thought. But the right question is not what is truth, but who is truth? And do you know truth today? Because God says truth comes in a person, not a proposition. That doesn't mean it isn't, isn't expressed in propositions, but it first comes in a person. And truth is at the heart of who God is. He is truth. He is true. Which is why it can be translated faithfulness. He will always be true. He'll be true to us. Now notice what's on both sides of the word truth. What, what is it? What, what is your Bible gift? L- loving kindness, love. Maybe some of you have unfailing love. Um, there's all kinds of different words because it's the Hebrew word. It's my favorite Hebrew word in the whole Bible. On both sides of truth. It's the word said. You got to say that. <laughs> There's no English word that can even come close to getting at the meaning of this word hesed. That's why sometimes it's translated as kindness or great kindness or loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast love or unfailing love. When you go to the first usage of hesed, it's, it's in reference to Lot when God spears Lot from, from, from Sodom. And this is what Lot says. Lot says, you have magnified your hesed to me in sparing my life. Because what hesed is, it's the unchanging, unconditional, never let go love of God. It's a love that is not earned. It's unmerited. It's grace. It's grace upon grace. In fact, in Exodus 32, we saw this a little bit. We didn't highlight it. But if you go back there, Moses, God says to Moses, after the golden calf, let me leave this people. But you keep reading, you just realize, he can't. And the reason he can't, just like he can't leave us, is he's bound to us because his character, at the core of his character, his character won't let him. And see, this is why later, when when Israel sins again, Moses is going to appeal to God. And the appeal that he's going to make is he's going to appeal to God's hesed. He's going to say, Lord, according to your hesed, would you please forgive us? David does the same thing in Psalm 51. The psalm that he writes after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and after he even uh, murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. I mean, think about that sin. There are only sinners in the Bible. He comes to God, and the only appeal he can make is, according to your said, blot out my transgressions. See, God's has said means the most amazing thing to me. It means that God will love me no matter how much of a mess I make of my life, that he's bound to me no matter how deep I fail. How do you bend metal? Because I think metal, more than anything, describes our hearts. You don't bend metal by hammering on it. Metal needs to be melted. And see, this is why when we take our sin and our failures to the law, or we take it to religion, it always hammers us and it beats us up. But when we take our sin to God's said, that unconditional, unfailing, loving kindness, it melts us. And this is why David said, your loving kindness, your said is better. It's better than life. 
This is the goodness of God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in hesed to a thousand generations of those who love me. But if you read this closely, there's a part of the description that almost seems entirely inconsistent, doesn't it? To me, it just like goes beep, beep. What part is it? It's the last part. And he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Oh, here it is again. The justice of God. And see, the justice of God is part of the goodness of God. I mean, how can God be good and and not be just? And I think while our hearts cry out for mercy and compassion and, and, and God being slow to anger and abounding and has said, we also want justice, don't we? Let's be honest. I want things to be fair. In fact, I love how the, living, the New Living Translation puts this, if you don't mind. In fact, I think I have this on PowerPoint. Look at that. But I do not excuse the, the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. Ooh. Ooh, as a parent, that's scary. He says the, the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And we wonder today, like, why all the chaos? Why all the, the, the junk going on in families? I'll tell you what, we're paying the piper. God is just. A man sows what he reaps. Sin is generational. Which means my sin is not just isolated, but because I'm a parent, it's going to be passed down into my children. There's this ripple effect going through my whole family, and it doesn't even just stop with my children, but it's going to go to my grandchildren. That's scary. But there's even grace in that because God says, I'm going to give you three to four generations to get it right, family. Deal with it. In fact, uh, the last verse of the Old Testament, who has that Malachi verse about the great day of the Lord? You know what the great day of the Lord will be described by when God comes? Fathers are going to turn their hearts to their children. Children are going to turn their hearts to their fathers. There's going to be, there's going to be a work being done. There's going to be rec- reconciliation being done. God's going to deal with the chaos and replace it with shalom. And the prophets also speak often about the great day of the Lord. And the great day of the Lord is going to be this day when God executes his justice, when he reigns over evil, when he puts the world to rights. And again, we're left with this tension that we've been looking at over and over again is how will a perfectly good God be both just and merciful? How does he both abound in a sad and loving kindness and yet punish the guilty? See, this is the narrative tension you feel throughout the Old Testament, which is why some of us don't like to read the Old Testament because we feel it so strongly. But even more than just the Old Testament, we feel this tension in our very own lives. Because as a youthful idealist, it was tempting for me to believe love wins. Why is like if we can just throw enough love and grace and compassion at anything, it's gonna win. But you get older and you see all the injustice in the world. And as much as your heart cries out for compassion, it also cries out for justice, for evil to be punished. But if that's the case, then that justice includes me and my failures and my sin. 
How is this going to get resolved? How can a merciful God be just? How can a just God be merciful? And see, Moses had to live with this tension. He never got God's full resolution to this tension. He only got the back parts of God. Not his face. But now think about our New Testament when Paul writes, in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. Paul's saying we got to see the face of God in Christ. We got more than just the back parts of God. We got the glory of God. We got his actual face. John says the same thing. He said, we beheld it with our eyes. We touched it with our hands. And through Jesus came grace. Grace upon grace. Has said upon has said. In fact, John even says in John 1, as he's introducing Jesus, he says, law came through Moses. And as glorious as that was, grace and truth came to us through Christ. Grace and truth. If this were Hebrew, it would be has said and amet. The core of God's character came pouring out of us onto us through Christ. Because Jesus shows us the face of God and we see in him how he is both compassionate and gracious, abounding in his said, and how he also does not let the guilty go unpunished. Because the punishment that brought us shalom was placed on him. He bore our sin, all of it. He took our punishment, all of it. The cross is first the justice of God. But Jesus hanging on that cross is also the hesed of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. You see the creator of the universe with outstretched arms saying, come to me. I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in said. It's more than a proposition. And it's on the cross that the father turned his face from the son. He couldn't see the face so that you and I today can behold the face of God. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they went to this great length for us because they absolutely love us. Do you see it? Do you see the face of God in Christ? Let me make this loud and clear. This is not a mystical scene. It's not singing songs like, oh, your eyes, oh, Jesus, are so beautiful. This is a gospel scene. It's seeing Christ and the face of Christ where he's placed himself right here. That's why I don't insult God by always asking for that extra word from him. As if this isn't enough. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. And it's here. Now, how are we going to respond to this? Well, look at Moses. Moses, who didn't get God's face, but he got just enough of God in verse 8 of 34 that he literally fell and bowed to the ground and he worshiped. What will our response be? I don't think there's anything greater than that we could do today. I don't think there's three steps. I think Moses in verse eight shows us what our response should be. Worship is enough. There's nothing greater we could do today or this week is to just find a place and just get on our knees and bow before him and worship him. 
I love what Paul said. Paul says, I will glory in one thing. I will glory in the cross of Christ. He says, this is my boast. This is my glory. In other words, what Paul is saying, my significance, my importance, it's going to be found here. Not just Christ, but Christ crucified. Is that what matters most to you right now? He's so good. He loves us so much. He doesn't leave even a stone unturned. He does everything we need to be in this marriage. Seek him with everything you got and you'll find him. Let's pray. God, living on this side of the cross of Christ, we just, we can't thank you, doesn't even do justice. Gratefulness doesn't do justice to the kind of response we should have to you for who you are. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in a said. And yet you will not let the guilty go unpunished. Thank you for taking our punishment, Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much that you bore all our sin. All God's wrath for all our sin. So that today we have the honor of being your children and part of your family. God, of all the things that matter to us right now, may this matter the most. May this be our glory. Open the eyes of our heart that we can see.